So I, I like to think of myself as being in the middle, so we'll see. <laughs> I do teach at IU, and um, so I have to apologize. It's a bit uh, cruel of me to start out the sermon this way, but I'm going to start with some mathematics. Uh, because I figure, like, <laughs> the semester's over, I already miss it, and um, I wanted to start teaching again. So, um, and, you know, like, some people have, like, a favorite color, a favorite song, whatever. I have a favorite mathematical theorem, and we're going to start with that, actually. So <laughs> it, it is actually true that I have a favorite math. Um, so this, uh, th and this is it. I'm not going to go through all the details. I just want you to get the gist of it. I know some of you are already kind of uh, tensing up inside, just showing numbers. So let me walk you through this, and then I'll talk a little bit about why we're talking about it. Um, so you know, I even word this in an academic way. Consider, consider the, list, the infinite list of all natural numbers. So let me, that sounds difficult. Just consider 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, until you go off into infinity, right? You're counting up. Natural numbers just means 1 through infinity. You're starting with 1, you're counting by 1s, OK? So think about this list of things, this list of numbers, and it's an infinite list. And you have some idea, I hope, of what infinity means in the sense of like, I mean, I think we all do, like when we're younger, we say, you know, did so, did not, did so, did not, did so, infinity. You have some idea at that point of what infinity means, did not, infinity plus 1. Um, and, and actually, I'll come back to that infinity versus infinity plus 1, because the next point, uh, Chip, can you move, is to consider the infinite list of all even natural numbers. So this is now, instead of counting by 1s, you're counting by 2s, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, et cetera, et cetera, off into infinity. Some of you probably know how this works. So the question to start with here, it's, it's kind of like you've reduced them by half, because you've instead of having by ones, you're counting by twos. So in some sense, you have half the numbers. And the question is, but they're both infinite. Are they the same infinity? Are they the same? Your head is pro possibly hurting at this point. That's OK. <laughs> And the answer, uh, there was a guy, uh, George, I don't know if it's George or Georg uh, Cantor in the 1800s who came up with this. He showed, had a proof that I'm not going to walk you through. I'll just give you kind of the intuition. Uh, go ahead. That they are the same size. And the reason they're the same size is that you can, the way he defined it was you set up a mapping between the two, which is why I have those fancy arrows there. But the idea is that every time you go off into infinity, you have a new, you're counting by ones, you have a new number you always have another number here. You can always go back and forth. Every time, if I have a, um, a bazillion, whatever number that is, you have two bazillion here. And it's always mapped up one to another. I, I'm seeing pain in a few faces, but I'm seeing nodding in other faces, which is good. OK, so they're the same size infinity. OK, okay next slide, Chip. Then Cantor said, OK, what about if we take, instead of looking at you know, these integers, these numbers that are clean, no one, we count by ones. Well, let's look at real numbers, real, which are decimal numbers. But, and he said, let's just look at the numbers between 0 and 1. So a very small space between 0 and 1. Are these the same size? And his answer was, no, they're not the same size. There's actually, this is actually a bigger infinity. All the different decimal numbers between 0 and so like 0 0.0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 0 0.456678, et cetera. Um, and go to the next. The problem, or the, the issue with this, is you don't know where to start counting. In, in the previous case, it's called countably infinite. These are called uncountably infinite, which really makes your head hurt. Because the idea is that you start at 0. What's the next number? What's the first number to start counting? And any number you give me, I can give you a lesser number. I can just add one zero to the point zero to the front of it, and all of a sudden, it's a smaller number. This, this is going to conclude the math portion of this morning. So like, just <laughs> feel good about that. The main point is that there are two kinds. Like, I did, probably actually didn't need to go all through this. I just told you I missed teaching already. Um, there, 
the main point is that there, there's more than one kind of infinity. In fact, I think there's an infinite number of infinities, but we don't need to get into all that. There's at least two of them, countably and uncountably infinite, which I think is amazing. There are all these metaphorical parallels about going deeper, you know, between zero and one versus, you know, broader or whatever. And I, there are many reasons I love it that I won't talk about. But what I really found cool, so I was looking this up, um, this, this is what I do, I just look up mathematical proofs online, and um, I was looking on Wikipedia, and it said, and I'd heard this before, um, so I, I think this is amazing, like kind of this is how the world works. I think it's an amazing fact, to me it's an amazing fact about God, about, you know, it's so complex, and just something as simple as counting. And Cantor, uh, I think, would agree with me, because he considered his work, on, quoting Wikipedia, so you know it's true, he considered his work on transfinite numbers to have been directly communicated to him by God, who had chosen Cantor to reveal them to the world. So consider yourself lucky that you've been, this has been revealed to you now. Um, so to me, and, and to Cantor, this says something about God. But what's really interesting is the response he got from other people, in particular people um, in the church at that time, because he was claiming, you know, this is from God, and they started accusing him of uh, various things. So I'll read another quote from Wikipedia. Some Christian theologians saw Cantor's work as a challenge to the uniqueness of the absolute infinity and the nature of God. In particular, Neo-Thomas thinkers, I, I don't know what Neo-Thomas means, I didn't study religious studies. Uh, Neo-Thomas thinkers saw the existence of an actual infinity that consisted of something other than God as jeopardizing God's exclusive claim to supreme infinity. So because there's more than one kind of infinity, therefore this infinite, you're, you're disproving God, this, infinite, this idea of an infinite God, and you're rejecting this theology that they've built up about God's infinite, and now you're saying there's more than one, and God's uniquely infinite, so like, there's this problem, this, this sort of definitional clash. And um, that, that's really what I want to get into today is, is I, I love this, uh, I don't know, I love so much about it that there's this uh, idea of there's something new that we've just learned, and all of a sudden it challenges our definition of God. And it really doesn't challenge God so much as our definition of God. Because God never said, well, in, by infinite, I mean, when I say I'm infinite, I mean uncountably infinite. He never kind of gave that, at least I don't have that in my Bible, this sort of specific pigeonholing. Like, and that, that's sort of the point I want to make today is we try and we try, but we, we can't define God and we can't pigeonhole and box God in. Um, and so, thank you, Chip. So we're going, today, actually, it's strange. It, it's, I know it's before Christmas, but um, so I thought about preaching on something on Christmas, but then I thought I ultimately didn't care that much about doing that, and I wanted to talk about Job instead. And I think um, Job actually, thinking about how God works anywhere in the Bible helps, us, helps me understand the Christmas story that God, I think that, um, I've already forgotten your guy, is it Joe jo and Kristen? Kendra. Kendra, there we go, thank you. When they were talking about, you know, God works the way he wants to work, that's kind of, in the Christmas story, God works the way he wants to work, in Job, God works the way he wants to work, and um, in our lives, he works the way he wants to work, which is sometimes problematic uh, for us. Uh, so, the, the, one of the problems I want to talk about today, and, and really the upshot of it, is that we tend to overdefine God and tell God what he's like. It's a similar situation in some respects in the book of Job. So just a little background before I read this. Um, I think most of you are familiar with the book of Job where bad things happen to him, right? He loses his family, um, he's suffering, he's in pain, he's ill, he loses his possessions. And the whole book of Job in the Old Testament is this long discussion between Job and his friends about why he's suffering. So the question Job has is, why am I suffering? Why is this happening? Why is there suffering? And his friends keep telling him, you sinned. You must have sinned. That's the way God works. That's the definition of God we have, that you sin, you know, if you sin, you get punished. So you're being punished. So just admit your sin and you're wrong. And then God will 
take care of, like maybe God will remove this suffering from you. So the whole time, the whole book is about this questioning. And finally, at the end of the book, um, Job, or God answers Job. And um, let me just read this. And we're not going to go through in detail this, but I just want to give you a flavor for, for what happens when God finally speaks in the book of Job. Um, okay, so it starts, with, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Which to me are the most frightening words in Scripture. Uh, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Uh, who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And there's more, but I'm not going to read the rest of it. It goes on for about four chapters where God just speaks and speaks. I read something, I think it was Frederick Buechner who says something about, you know, when God arrives on the scene in Job, he doesn't explain, he explodes. And it kind of, that's the sense I get here too of kind of, he's not trying to defend himself or anything. He's just saying, you know, Job's question is, why am I suffering? And God responds with, I'm going to tell you that I'm God. And in fact, the point, the, the title for this the sermon, and the point I have, uh, I actually, I think Matt, when he was praying last week, said something along these lines, um, that he's God and you're not, he's God and I'm not, we're not God. I think that, that's, I think a fair assessment of, of what God says in, at the end of Job. Um, that there are certain roles that he has and certain things that we have and, and um, they're different. And um, uh, this, this sermon's a little bit different than, I've preached a few times in the past, it's a little di different in the sense it's a little broader and kind of just taking that fact and working out the implications. But I am quite happy uh, with my two-point sermon, or the two points here. Um, it's kind of like how you know, six-minute abs are better than seven-minute abs. I've worked a three-point sermon down to two points, so I, I consider that good. And I got them really short, too. So <laughs> God and us. Um, there's really two parts of this story. So really looking at the roles that each of us fulfill, um, what's, what is it about God's side? And kind of look at the passage from God's side and then looking at it from our side. I'm looking at interactions between us and God. Um, so when I look at uh, the side of God, one of the problems that I have, at least, or one of the issues, is a desire to overdefine God. A desire to, it's sort of a control issue, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but kind of, I, I want to tell God what he's like. This is what I know of him. And some, you know, often I can point to scriptures from which I make inferences, and then kind of say, well, this is what I think you're like, just like the... Um, he does claim to be infinite, and then kind of tell him exactly what that means. Um, th this is one of the issues that I see uh, at work in my own life, and it's, it's one of those things that's sort of troubling to me when I, when I kind of name it and kind of point it out to myself. And, and part of the reason it's troubling, and, and, this, and this is where I said it, uh, it does actually tie into the Christmas story in the sense of uh, everyone involved in the Christmas story thought they knew how God worked, and then God worked in a different way when he brought Jesus into the world. It's kind of that sort of, we think we know how God works, and then suddenly he's changing things. And that's sort of, um, one, one of the points I want to make is just sort of, 
Um, well, first of all, we don't know everything about God. When God comes on and starts talking to Job, his first words are, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And it's kind of, I feel that sometimes when I'm kind of questioning, not just questioning God, but just thinking about things and, and, and defining things. I have to admit at some point that I don't know everything about God. And this continues in the New Testament. You know, Paul talks about seeing as only a reflection as in a mirror. But when we think we have God figured out, he moves. In the past um, few months, um, Matt's been preaching on, on various things, and, and we was... Um, preaching in the book of Acts, it just struck me when we were talking about uh, looking at Peter and Paul. They both have these great stories in the book of Acts. And one of the things I love about the story of Peter um, is he's Jewish, so he doesn't eat pork. And then there's this whole thing about, in the book of Acts, okay, now eat pork. Like, now it's fine. And it's sort of this idea of, once you, you know, Peter has this definition of God and this sort of clear picture, which is nice. I love clarity. Has a clear picture of God and, and rules to follow. And then, um, God comes along and says, oh, I'm, I'm moving. I'm doing something new here. I'm doing, you know, there's something new happening, and do you want in on it? And my initial response usually is no, that I don't want in on that because it forces me to change something. And that's sort of the thing. I, I think of Peter, that example, I think of Peter potentially missing out on God's movements in real time and myself moving out, missing out on God's movements in real time. I think, I mean, I was uh, talking, brainstorming with my wife Stephanie this week about uh, modern examples of God moving, in, or ways that we kind of define God, and then God potentially moving a little bit differently. And one that, I, I mean, Matt mentioned my dad's a pastor, so one thing I grew up with was the idea that a part of following God is that you are in church every Sunday. Like, that's how I define my walk with God. And um, I think it's a great idea to go to church every Sunday. I have their reasons for it. But when I start making that my definition of God, then problems start to arise, and I start to cheapen and lessen God. But that's, oh, that's it? Like, all right, well, that's, that's who God is. I just, I show up on Sunday, and everything is, is pretty cool. Um, and this change in my way of looking at things is admitting that I can't figure God out, and therefore being more responsive to his movements and to his new things. But the problem, and, and really the problem I want to deal with more this morning, is, is sort of there, there is a reason that I and others probably uh, like to define God and, and over-define him at times, is that if I don't do that, it gets sort of scary. Um, it, in my mind, I, I have a, very, a, a large fear of uncertainty, um, a large fear of losing control, of being powerless, these types of things, of not knowing things, um, not knowing what to do in life. Um, and if I uh, don't start defining God, then these things they come out a little bit more. It's, I, I like to call it a Dickinson family trait that we fear the unknown. Um, so like my grandparents, for example, don't like to travel outside of, in any town that is more than like 20,000 people or so. And, and I identify with that. Like that's, that sounds like a good plan because it's, you know, it's nice. Like I know what to expect at that point. Um, unfortunately, and, and for myself, it's kind of, um, you know, if I, uh, if I get out of my daily routine, for example, there, there's a large problem in my world, uh, which doesn't, may not affect the rest of you, but it, it certainly affects me. If I, I, I think about it, it's sort of tied up with an issue of control for me. Sort of, um, and, and like I said, these are all, like a lot of things I'm going to say today could be their own mini-sermons or something, so I'm, I am going broader here. I won't go into all these details, but I, I feel like the, um, the rug is going to uh, be pulled out from underneath me at some point. Like, I kind of live in perpetual fear of this happening. And so, therefore, I want to start making things more precise. I want to start making them kind of this, oh, let me, if I don't know what's going to happen, like, I don't, um, if I lose, you know, my computer breaks or something, then the world has ended, according to me. And um, I've lost some control. 
And if I don't do it, like, I guess the way I, I characterize it, I was saying to Steph Stephanie this morning, we watch a lot of home and garden television. If we had the DIY network, I'm sure we would watch more of that. But it's sort of a DIY faith. Um, a do it yourself. Like I, the way I approach faith is a do-it-yourself type of faith. Like I'll just come up with the rules. Like I'll, you know, the Bible is a great source, but then I'll kind of take that and and just determine what I'm going to do. Like this will be my quiet time. This will be like I have these certain things that I need. You know, at that point, what I'm going to do. And if I don't do that, then. I don't know, I get shaken up a bit. Like, I just don't like this feeling of being shaken of when things like, ha when things like this happen. But what I see happening in Job and I see happening consistently throughout the Bible is that I can't control it and I can't define it. And, and when he talks in Job 38 about, uh, you know, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Uh, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? There's some things that just are not our business and some things that are not under our control. And I hate that fact, um, but it's true. And um, on the one hand, actually I say I hate that fact. On the one hand, I hate that fact and I fear it. it like I said, it's this fear of the unknown. It's fear of losing control. It's, it's fear of not having a grasp on things um, that, that puzzles me and drives me into despair at times. But I, what I want to suggest is replacing that fear so thinking about this, I haven't been too practical. I've kind of been actually rambling a little bit in my mind, but so this really, I guess I do miss teaching when I do ramble during class, and now I can do that here as well, um, is this idea of replacing fear with freedom, and specifically the freedom of not knowing and of not controlling. And to me, it's, there is an actual freedom in this. Um, I read something by Richard Foster years ago uh, where he just, he says, you're not CEO of the universe, which is also a true fact and probably a good fact for most of us to learn. Um, but that's actually, in the way he said you're not CEO of the universe was supposed to be a comforting thing, that like we're actually not the ones in charge. And this to me is free. And I'll give two things that, I, that um, are sort of practical tips for this. Um, and this all you know, stems from the fact you know, God's awesome. He's God and we're not. And so kind of, uh, I need to live that way, live in freedom. This one thing I've been trying to do more of is looking for ways to live, uh, let's call it control-free. Um, and I'll, uh, to me, Jesus says in, in the New Testament, he says to do not worry because, you know, God cares for you more than the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And I love that passage, except I can never live it out. Um, so I'm always frustrated by that passage because it's like uh, I'm anxious and thanks for telling me not to be anxious. But it makes more sense to me when I look at a passage like Job and I start thinking like, start getting my perspective clear of, okay, he's God and I'm not. This is the type of God I'm worshiping that can be in charge of these things. And some of the ways, this looking for ways to live control-free is, is the way I, I have to make, in my own mind, make things very practical down to the level of implementation. Um, is it's... It's just, just letting things happen. So like one example is a couple of years ago, we had a friend who I think a lot of you know, Sadie uh, Van Ruler was her name, and she, was having a, she wanted to have a party with international students. And so she um, asked us if we would host it, and we said we would, and then I don't know exactly what happened, but then like 30 people showed up at my house who I didn't know, and there were all these things happening. I couldn't like, there were people carving pumpkins in our garage, and it was raining, it was a strange night, and I lost control over the house and the party. <laughs> Afterwards, there were pumpkin seeds in my bathroom. I'm not, still not sure how that happened. And um, it was, 
it was a strange evening, but it was probably the best party I've ever been to. It was just this sort of, for me, it was like one little step of opening up control and saying, okay, I give this over to you, God, and recognizing that that was a decision of between me and God, kind of, okay, well, between Stephanie and me and God, of opening up our house, uh, of, of just practicing that a little bit at a time, like, okay, let me try to find a way to release a little bit of control. It's not always, like in that case, it worked out beautifully. Like it was a lot of fun, even though I kind of had to let some things go. Uh, so other times it doesn't always work as well that way, but um, I think, th- but the practicing of it, I think is useful. Seeing it as a spiritual discipline. And the other, so this is just this kind of idea of, of relinquishing things to God and letting God take charge of what he's in charge of. Another piece of advice that I have is uh, the one I like to call calm down, which relates to that, of letting things go. Um, and I think of this kind of, oftentimes I think of matters of discussing faith, for example. Because um, I know there's, I've been told a lot over the years about evangelism and apologetics. And um, sometimes it seems a little coercive to me. And so one of the things I like about this passage in Job is, is God comes on the scene and basically states his claim to being God. And to me, that, that's such a freeing thing. When I talk with other people, I don't have to be God to them. I don't have to define God to such an extent that they understand, oh, everything about God. I have to just be responsive to God. Free not to coerce people. Jesus never coerced people. Um, I'm not responsible for making or defining the truth. I'm just responsible for responding and living in it. And kind of, that to me is a very freeing lesson that I have to learn, okay, once I know God's role here, God works in people's hearts. I don't work in people's hearts. And kind of, um, I'm not sure I would know how to do that. Uh, These sorts of things, once I get my perspective correct, then I can actually live a more calm way. I hope I'm making sense. I see either puzzled looks or people just kind of thinking things through, and I'm hoping you're thinking things through. But for me, this has been a, uh, hope I'm just telling, I'm telling you what I know, but unfortunately, you're also dealing with a finite being up here, um, so that's going to have some problems. But part of the reason I say this is, is I think it's actually uh, problematic at times when we start defining God to our friends or to people to such an extent that that definition becomes God. It was kind of like, I, I remember I was going through Barnes & Noble a few years ago, and I just picked up a book by some atheist, and he was going through the arguments against God and, and said something about, you know, if God's omnipotent, that means he can, he can create an object so heavy that even he can't lift it up. And I was like, what? You know, what is this? Like, what is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. But I realized that's kind of the terms we we've give to other people sometimes. Of, oh, well, let's, let's play this game of, def- you, know, challenging, you know, challenging one another's definitions. Whereas I think... For me, the, the um, actually this goes to the next point, Chip. For me, the, the challenge has been, and the encouragement has been, to switch kind of my idea of defining God to one of worshiping God. And, and I like to think of this as kind of, I don't want to worship a God that I can pin down. Like, if I know everything about God, then, then kind of what's the point about worshiping? And I think of this, um, let's Chip go to the next little thing. I think of this when I, when I encounter new things, kind of like this infinity thing, which is potentially scary, and, and some of you may have been scared, is that it's a, it's an, every new thing, every challenging thing, scary thing, is a new opportunity to worship God. When I see these things, I learn new facts about the world. It doesn't mean oh, I need to um, all of a sudden be afraid of God, or afraid for God, I guess. Um, it's a, a new chance to worship him, a new chance to say, oh, that's something cool. I, I tell you, that, that mathematical fact, some of you who are math people may understand this, and those of you who aren't won't, uh, possibly, but that actually has increased my faith, just learning that kind of fact about God. And it's kind of, um, I think it's pretty awesome. Um, 
another quote from Richard Foster on this that I love is, when he's, he was talking about prayer, but I think this is true of worship too, is that when we pray, when we worship, we pass from thinking of God as part of our life to the realization that we are part of his life. And um, I love this idea of moving from, okay, God's something that I just, and that, that's part of where this comes from when I'm defining God, is that I kind of have my world, and then I'm putting God into it in one way or another. And then I need, when I worship, I switch that. When I try to make my life a life of worship, I switch that around where it's kind of, it's God's world, and now I'm just a part of it. And um, which actually gets us to the next part of this, um, which is us. Um, so seeing ourselves as not as important as we think we are, which I think we can get from um, this passage in Job, uh, if you read this. So, and, and actually, when it continues, um, so there, there's a thought that we're important people. God talks to Job for a few chapters, and then Job finally responds, finally gets a chance to respond. He does say something in the middle, like in chapter 39 or 40. But then he replies to the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Which, first of all, I just love the drama queen aspect of Job here, of the, uh, <laughs> I repent in dust and ashes. Um, but it's, I do appreciate his honesty here and the idea of the humility. And, and, and Job is really taking this to heart. It's kind of, um, I, I read this passage as kind of, kind of, it's entirely within God's right to tell us that we are, within the grand scheme of things, about as valuable as dirt. He doesn't say that explicitly. Actually, God speaks very non-literally in indirect ways in this, when he questions, he asks a lot of questions. Um, and he doesn't say we're as valuable as dirt. I'm going to come back to that point. But he makes it clear that he could say that, that he is, he's God and we're not. But there's, there's this distance in terms of who's in charge of the universe. And it kind of reminds me, there was a, um, we watch a lot of the, I guess you guys know our television preferences now of HGTV, and we watch a lot of the Cosby show as well at our house and have watched that over the years. And there's a, an episode, uh, maybe two episodes, where he, um, Bill Cosby says, playing Cliff Huxtable, says to his son, um, when he's angry at him, he says, I'm your father, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. <laughs> and um, I think it's a, a decent way to summarize part of what God's getting at here, of he's God, he brought us into this world, he can take us out. And um, now that's not the whole story, but uh, when I read the, these passages, and I start seeing, hearing things of, you know, have, you see, have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Um, you know, were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. There's no way not to be humbled if I take this to heart. And so there's this idea of replacing sort of the idea of being important with the idea of being humble. And the way that practically this works for me, or where I see this working, is how well I'm doing it with my relationships with other people. Um, it's sort of read somewhere that vertical relationships have horizontal consequences. Um, and it's, if I am humble before God, that should be reflected in my relationships with other, others. As I said, I have to make things very concrete, so other people, it's easier for me to see, and so sometimes I see that being reflected. And part of the reason is this, when you're loving others, um, you can't be self-centered. The universe cannot revolve around you, which is why it's a good litmus test. If you're having difficulty loving someone else, it might be a good litmus test that you're having difficulty loving God and being humble before God. Because you can't, is it my world or is it someone else's? Who's, whose world is this? And if it's my world, then I can't really love others, I can't really love God. And the other thing about loving others, because, I mean, in this passage, God kind of reserves the right to be unpredictable. And 
as far as I can tell, other people, at least in my life, has, have reserved the right to be unpredictable as well. And so when I have to love someone else, I realize I can't control them. And so it's a kind of a good litmus test as to where I'm at with certain control issues. If you don't have control issues, I, I think that uh, you're amazing, and I don't know how you do that. But uh, for me, at least, I have difficulty trying to control my life. I, I, uh, I mentioned my dad's a pastor, and I, he was uh, doing a wedding. It was actually Stephanie's brother's wedding, and he was given the homily. And I remember this. Um, he gave a little example of a couple from his church that told him they had been married for 35 years, and the last five of those years had been happy. And, um, which you do the math, and that's a significant number of years that were not happy, by implication. And they said, for 30 years we tried to change each other, and then for the last five years we gave up on that. And we've had happy five years. And um, that's sort of a good lesson, both in terms of how I relate to other people and in terms of how I relate to God. Just, can I give up that control or not? And to con so loving others is a constant reminder of the fact that it's not our world. Um, okay, and the last thing, oh, right, um, is, actually, it's not the last thing, the second to last. I, I think part of the full story, I mentioned that God could call us dirt, but it's not the full story, is that he does value us. And I think part of the problem comes in th this sort of definitional thing um, of what we mean by knowing God. And um, in Job, even, he talks about, you know, he knows that his Redeemer lives, he knows something about God, and he knows that God is going, can save him. And um, this, I, I even used little uh, subscripts there, so I, I definitely went all out on the, the nerd factor for this sermon. <laughs> um, but kind of the idea is, if you know Spanish or some other language, like there are no, I shouldn't say no Spanish, if you just kind of know Spanish, there are two different verbs, like saber and conocer, and I believe saber is the, you know something intellectually. I'm looking at someone who's a Spanish speaker. Um, saber is to know like a fact, and conocer is to know a person. Okay, good. So there's a difference there, and I think too often I, I approach my relationship with God as knowing a fact about God and knowing more facts about God, as opposed to, you know, is this the way God works? Let me, if God works about, you know, this is how sin works, and this is how kind of, let me work out the whole theology of it. When more and more what I see in, in the Bible is working out a, a uh, relationship of knowing God, which is the other kind of know. And that kind of way of looking at things, that's where God, he makes it clear in Job that we don't know things, we don't run the world, but he makes it clear throughout scripture that he still, he treats us as extremely valuable and that he loves us. So I think I have a passage, or maybe I don't. Yes, okay. Of Psalm 8, and I won't read the whole thing just in the interest of time, but what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. This, and, and then he goes on to talk about the things where in Job he says that he's in charge of, but he's put them under our feet. The thing I, I think is important here is recognize that we are valuable. So it's kind of this idea of when we're looking at things definitionally, um, we really don't have a lot of sway with God, but when we look at things relationally, we do. I mean, it's kind of, he loves us and he wants to have those relationships and wants to move things uh, forward. So the last point I want to make, now it's the last point. I almost used the word penultimate in a moment ago for the second to last point. I'm glad uh, that really would have been nerdy. Now that I mentioned it, that's even worse. Um, so really, when I talk about God's role, this comes back to me with worship. And worship, an intimate, or, uh, a point that's tied up with it directly is humility. So I think about it from my side, I think about humility. When I think about it from God's side, I think about worship. And the overarching point I get out of this is an issue of trust. I mentioned this as a, a control issue for me, um, but
But I like the fact that the God in Job is a God that I can trust. I mean, he is in charge of the universe. I'm not the CEO of the universe. And, um, I think about this, when I think about kind of, um, like the God of Marcus is sort of an anxious God, kind of, he's a bit of a weenie, kind of like, I don't know, just can't do everything. But when I think about the God of, in the book of Job, he's a God who can do everything and has done. He makes it clear the things he has done, kind of his resume there. And, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned, I preached back in, I think, July, and I mentioned at that time that I, um, I volunteer at the, the jail and just going to meet with some inmates. And I was in there one time, and, and someone else was actually leading, so I just kind of sat there. There was kind of a miscommunication. And so I sat there and listened. They were having a session on addiction recovery. And um, the, guy, the guy was talking about how kind of people, when they get over an addiction, they start replacing addictions with kind of other obsessions like running or something and they get really busy and kind of they're doing things doing things doing things and this guy who was not religious as far as I could tell said he's like you know I hear these people talk about being busy and being busy doing this doing that and then you know someday that busyness wears off and you're not busy and that drug's still there it's like I tell you if you don't have a higher power you won't get over that drug and, and I was floored because I I didn't think of him as a religious person, first of all, but then when I, when I heard higher power, I thought, I don't know what he means by that, but for me, I know what I mean by that. I mean this God here that shows up at the end of Job as a higher power. That's the kind of higher power that can save us from things like addictions, can save me from things like uh, my constant anxiety, things about you know these worries that we have where, where there are these trust issues. I need a God that's big and that can, um, can handle these things. To get out of my self-absorption, I need sort of a God that I... I can trust. And it took me a while to, to think about the, the opposite of trust. Um, if you haven't figured out, it's kind of replacing one thing for another. I don't think I made that clear, but this idea of I'm replacing my, my bubble, my world, my, my little world and where I control everything, where it's the DIY faith with, that, with a trusting relationship with God. And I'll, th this is the bad thing I mentioned about you're working with a finite being up here. Um, is all, my, my only tip here is to at least admit it. Like, so when I have these problems of something didn't go right at a paper rejected or I don't know, I don't know what it is for you, I, I usually kind of start blaming people as opposed to saying that it's actually a trust issue between me and God. Um, and so I think the first step, and I wish I were further along my journey so I could give you a, a next step after that. But, but my first step is at least to admit that I have a trust issue. And um, Chip, can you go to this passage? I, I found this... I love the book of 1 John. When you think about love, it's a great book. Um, and I was reading through it uh, a couple weeks ago, and let me just read this to you. I think ultimately all the words I said, if you just go home and read this passage, you'll probably have something better than the sermon. My dear ch children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It is also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. I'm going to read that one again because I kind of identify with that. It's also the way this loving God, living in God's reality is the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. Which I think he makes a strong case in Job that he's greater than that and we know more about it than we do ourselves. So let me go to the last slide here. Um, so I... I do teach linguistics, I think, in terms of verbs uh, and other parts of speech. Hopefully, uh, I mentioned the point is that God is God and we're not. And there's a lot of things that stem from that that just affect, kind of pervade every aspect of my life. And I hope I gave you a flavor of that today. 
I get into problems when I start doing these things, when I start defining God and I start trying to control God or control what he's going to do. Whereas when I go to these things, when I start obeying God, trusting God, serving, loving, and worshiping God, things work better. Uh, and um, that's my encouragement today is, is you know, I, I mentioned it's the scariest passage in, in the Bible to me is when God comes on the scene and says, you know, brace yourself, I will question you and you will answer me. But it's also one of the most freeing passages to me because it means that I can focus my life on worship and on trust as opposed to this bubble that I normally live in. So let me pray for us. God, I just acknowledge that you are God and I am not. And um, I pray that we would live a life of worship, live, live lives of worship, live lives of trusting you and serving you. In Christ's name, amen. We finish every Sunday at Exodus with uh, communion. And those people who are serving, if you come on up, whoever is serving this morning. Because here's what I want us to do, just to kind of uh, practice something Marcus was saying. The usual habit at Exodus.